would take your Bible and turn to Colossians chapter 3 as we'll be there again this morning. And before we dive in, I just need to make one more quick announcement. The, the elders and I have continued to get a lot of questions recently about COVID because I know that there are many cases kind of springing up again. And just to mention a couple of things, uh, masks are optional. You don't have to wear those. You're certainly welcome to wear those. No one will shame you for doing so, but they are optional. The only thing that we would ask just in considering one another is if you do have flu-like symptoms that you would just stay back and watch online or if you know for certain that you've been in contact recently with someone that's got COVID, that you would stay back uh, just for a time so that we can uh, keep one another safe in that way. But continue to meet and worship our Savior. We're excited to do that this morning in Colossians chapter 3. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Over the past several decades, there has been a gradual watering down of the gospel in the United States and really across the world. In an attempt to simplify the gospel message and in hopes to encourage many people to accept the message, we've chipped away at the gospel down to the bare bones, or in some cases, even preaching an incomplete gospel, which is, of course, a false gospel. Because the gospel is a gospel of grace, it's often presented as if becoming a Christian or a disciple of Jesus Christ is just a really simple, flippant decision. It's just mental assent. It's almost like offering someone a piece of bubble gum. Hey, do you want this? Sure. Okay, you're in. But you know, when Jesus talked about being a disciple and a follower of his, he used very different language. Listen to Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The Apostle Paul testified that this was exactly the kind of, of transformational relationship he had with the Lord Jesus Christ in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where he declares, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. These words are in stark contrast to the idea that to be a disciple of Christ is simply to repeat after me and say a prayer or to simply say yes to Jesus. According to Jesus, if you want to follow him, you have to die. You must die. Not physically die, although be willing to do that for his sake if it was called, called upon you for that. But he means to spiritually lay down your hold on life. You have to let go of your sin and let go of ruling your life and instead follow the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord and master of your life. True faith in Jesus then is more than just mental assent to the facts of the gospel. It involves a wholesale turning from sin that we call repentance, a willingness to turn from sin and follow Jesus Christ as Lord. So then when a person becomes genuinely saved, there is necessarily a transformation. Everything is different. Their perspective has changed. Their, their motivations for living life has changed. 
And what the Apostle Paul's been teaching us in Colossians chapter 3 is that even the fundamental relationships that we have in this life are changed. Human relationships, such as the marriage relationship, should be changed because a person comes to Christ. The parent-child relationship should be dramatically changed when a person comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to talk about a third relationship that was a common relationship in homes at that time in the Roman Empire that Paul says also must change when a person comes to Jesus Christ. Let's read Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. And talking about the family, he says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. We pick up here this week. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven." As we've said several times before, Paul is dealing with the three primary relationships that would have been part of a household in his time period. And he structures this list, I'll put the list there for you, he structures this list intentionally with the the primary relationship moving to the secondary relationship to the third most primary relationship with the one who's in submission starting the list and the one who is to lead following. So wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, and masters. This third relationship is the relationship that we'll begin to talk about this morning, the relationship between slaves and masters. Now, obviously, we can't just dive into this topic without stepping back and talking for a moment first about the larger issue of slavery as an institution. We have to be very careful when we read the scriptures not to force our culture, and our cultural history upon the Bible. One of the fundamental hermeneutical principles of studying Scripture is to begin with the historical context that was happening at that time. We have to first understand who is Paul talking to and what did this look like in his day. Obviously, in our culture, it's uncomfortable even to say the word slave or slavery because of our nation's history. In fact, this is such a touchy subject that most modern English Bibles refuse to even translate the Greek word doulos, which means slave, as slave. Instead, they change it to servant. There are only two English translations that I'm aware of that currently translate the word doulos, which means slave, that's all that it means, as slave. The Holman Christian Standard and the New Legacy Standard Bible are the only two that do that. The reason, of course, is because it's offensive to English speakers, especially in the U.S., to, to hear and to say the word slave. 
Now, it's outside of our, our scope or ability this morning to, to handle everything the Bible says about slavery, but I do want to say a few important things to help us understand the context before we just jump into these verses. First of all, it's important to note that the kind of slavery that took place in our country, in our history, is clearly condemned in the scriptures. The slave trade in the United States was based off of kidnapping free people and bringing them to this country to enslave them. The Bible says that is patently sinful, Exodus 21, 16. He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. How about Deuteronomy 24, 7? If a man is caught kidnapping any of his countrymen of the sons of Israel, and he deals with him violently or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from among you. So let me just say clearly right off the bat that the kind of slavery that took place here in our country was condemned by the scriptures and should have been removed and was a sinful institution. But there's something else we need to understand, and that is that while sin, the sinful practice of kidnapping people against their will and enslaving them has gone on throughout history, not just in ours, but across the world, and unfortunately continues to happen, there actually were many other reasons that a person might find himself as a slave during Paul's time period. Listen to what J.A. Brooks says. He says, a person could become a slave as a result of capture and war, default on a debt, inability to support and voluntarily selling oneself, being sold as a child by destitute parents, birth to slave parents, conviction of a crime, or kidnapping and piracy, which we just talked about. Now what that means, this is really important to understand, this is different than the way we think about slavery and what happened in our country. Slavery at the time of Paul had nothing to do with ethnicity. It had nothing to do with the way you looked. In fact, people of all different skin colors and ethnic backgrounds could have been and were slaves. So, so we have to, to take that part of our context and remove it when we're talking about what Paul is mentioning here. Paul, as, as Brooks that I just quoted, as he mentions, one of the ways that a person could become a slave at this time period was by their own choice. For example, if you fell on hard times financially and could no longer provide for your family, there was a way for you to willingly, voluntarily become a slave to have your needs met, to be clothed and to be fed in exchange for your services. Slaves at this time period were actually paid a monthly stipend plus food, clothing, and lodging. Not only that, there were legitimate ways for a slave to become a free person. J.A. Brooks again says, freeing of slaves was possible and common in Roman times. Masters in their wills would often free their slaves, and sometimes they did so during their lifetimes. Industrious slaves could make and save money and purchase their own freedom. By the first century, a large class of freedmen had developed, and there was even a synagogue of the freedmen in Jerusalem. You see that in Acts chapter 6, verse 9. Now, the last thing I want you to understand about the historical context in which Paul is writing is that in this time period, slaves were often treated as members of the family. 
That's why Paul includes them on this list. Seems odd to us that Paul would include on a list of of household members the, the relationship of slaves to masters, but that wouldn't have been odd at all in this time period because the slaves would have lived in the house with the family and would have been clo- become close relationally with every member of the family. It's also important for us, even though it's uncomfortable in our culture, to use the biblical words to use the word slave and to use the word master. The reason is because as we're going to see over the next two weeks, Paul uses that language of slave and master to make a very important spiritual point that we miss. We miss the significance of that if we only refer to it as a servant and a master. So because slavery was an institution at that time that was deeply entrenched into the Roman culture, Paul gives instructions to Christian slaves who are sitting out there in the congregation that would be reading the letter to the Colossians on how they too, even as a slave, can testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the way that they fulfill their role in the household. But your question this morning may be, well, that's... That's nice, it's a nice history lesson, but how in the world does a passage on slaves in the first century help me at all? How is this relevant to my life? Well, the truth is, as I've studied this passage, I think there are many crucial Christian principles that we can draw from what Paul says that should affect every single one of us and the way that we think about some crucial areas of our life. Because what Paul is arguing for here really doesn't have anything to do with slavery. He's not addressing the institution of slavery. Instead, he's speaking to slaves who find themselves stuck in this institution and saying, as a Christian, here should be your perspective. And the perspective that he gives to them is very, very helpful for us. There are three key commands that Paul gives to these slaves, Christian slaves, in in this passage. And from that, we're going to see three aspects of the Christian life that should be informed by Paul's instruction. The first of those is a Christian perspective of human authority. I'll give you the other two. We'll come back to them. A Christian perspective of earthly work is number two. And a Christian perspective of serving Christ is number three. We won't get to number three today. We'll just be looking at the first two. So let's look back at our passage, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. And we'll see this first aspect, a Christian perspective of human authority. He says, Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, as we think about this, there's really one crucial idea that Paul wants to get out to these Christians, and it really comes through in every single verse. Here's the theme of these verses. Christians are slaves of Christ and therefore must serve earthly authorities with integrity and diligence for his glory. Let me say that again. Christians are slaves of Christ and therefore must serve earthly authorities with integrity and diligence for his glory. Again, we'll see that played out over and over again. Now here with this this first aspect, he begins in verse 22, 22 with this command. The command is obey. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. 
Now, Paul's first instruction here is very straightforward. It's a present active imperative, meaning that these Christian slaves were to do this as an ongoing action. This was to be what characterized them in their role in the home at that time. And this falls right in line with what he's already said to children. Remember, he told children that they're to obey their parents in everything. And wives are to submit to their husbands. As we said when we referred to both of those, the only caveat for for every Christian when it comes to human authority is if that authority tells you to do something that's outside the bounds of what God has commanded in Scripture, then you do not have to obey that. Otherwise, Paul says, obey. Now, it's important to understand from the outset that Paul's priority here is to highlight that the, the slave's relationship with his earthly master is to be informed and directed by his submission to his heavenly master. That's so important. That's really what Paul is dealing with. He's not arguing his personal opinion or cultural bias. He's not making any comments about the fairness or the morality of slavery as an institution. Instead, Paul does what he always does. He looks past the surface of the situation to the spiritual realities that are involved, and he's encouraging these slaves to do what he said earlier in chapter 3. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. This is how they are to respond. This is Paul's concern for every Christian. And we see that even subtly here because he says, Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Literally, in the Greek, it says, in the flesh. In the flesh. Now, now why make that distinction? Why not just say, Slaves, obey your masters? Why add, in the flesh? It's because he's already pointing them to the fact that there is another authority that matters. These earthly masters are just that. They're earthly masters. They're not their ultimate authority. God is. They belong not to their human master. They belong to their heavenly master. And that's what he wants them to understand. Now, obviously and thankfully, none of us in this room are slaves. But at the same time, every single one of us is under human authority of various kinds. Many of you have jobs and therefore you have a boss. And they are your most immediate human authority. Even if you don't work, you have other authorities in your life that we all have to submit to, whether it's police officers or local authorities or the president, things like that. Or in the home, as we've already talked about, there are, there's an authority structure there. All of us are under authority of some kind. And I would argue that if Paul could say to a slave who has no choice in the matter that they must obey their earthly master then how much more should we as free people willingly and humbly submit to the authority of those that God has placed over us in this life? Remember that that Paul has commanded in other places that we are to submit especially to governing authorities. Romans 13 verses 1 and 2. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they have opposed the, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. When it comes to the authorities that God's placed in each of our lives, the command is clear. We are to obey ultimately because our obedience to them 
is a reflection of our obedience to God himself. We'll see this over and over again. But the motivation for obedience for these slaves here in the context and for us has nothing to do with the human authority. It has everything to do with love and obedience to Christ. And so as we move our way through this text, I want you to be thinking in your life, what are the authorities that you're in submission to today? And begin applying these principles to your own heart. Now at this point, Paul's going to explain or expound upon this command to obey. What does that look like exactly? He's going to give us some negative things, things that that obedience does not include, and some positive things, what obedience really looks like. And so test your own heart as we walk through these. He begins with the negative. Here's what is, is not real obedience. Look back at verse 22. Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. He says, not with external service. Literally, the Greek word is not with eye service. Eye service is service that's performed not only or performed only to make an impression on the, in the owner's presence. It's, it's doing what the boss says when the boss is around but doing other things the way you want to do them when the boss is not. So what Paul is calling for here is consistency. He's calling for us to to be as fervent in our work in private as we are when our boss is standing over our shoulder. He's calling for integrity. That's what real obedience is. True obedience is not putting on a show for the boss, but then when he's not around, slacking off or cutting corners in order to make your life easier. And don't forget who Paul's talking to here. These are slaves. They're not being paid for their labor. How much more should we, who are employees, if you have a job this morning, earning a wage for our efforts, how much more should we work with integrity if Paul even commands these slaves to do so? This is what real obedience looks like. Not only should our obedience not be for eye service, but he goes on to say, as those who merely please men, literally, Man-pleasers, not for the pleasure of men. This Greek word describes a person whose primary motivation for obedience is to receive the praise of men rather than the praise of God. And that kind of obedience may go a long way with building up your reputation with your boss and causing other people to think well of you, but understand it does nothing when it comes to receiving the favor of God. Remember, this is what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount in a different context in Matthew chapter 6. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, don't let your hand, left hand know what your right hand's doing so that your giving will be in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus here warns that the, the motivation for obedience must be the praise of God rather than the praise of men. If you do what you do so that other people will think you're great and have a high opinion of you, then that is your reward. Their high opinion is all that you've earned for yourself. That's what Jesus says. But then Paul goes on to give the positive counterpart. He says, this is what obedience is not. 
Let me show you what obedience is. In all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but, or instead, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. He begins with sincerity of heart. This is serving with heartfelt obedience. It's the kind of obedience that will lead us to obey even when our deeds are done in secret or they're unknown or unnoticed. It's the very opposite of eye service. It's serving from a true heart of obedience, motivated by your love for Christ. And then he goes on to that motivation now by saying, fearing the Lord. Our obedience should be with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Rather than obeying simply to earn the high opinion of men, we serve out of reverence and respect for God. This is how the Christian is to think about true obedience. It's not enough just to do the right things on occasion or even to do the right things all the time with the wrong motives. God says real obedience, the kind of obedience that he's calling these Christian slaves to and us, is obedience that that overflows from a sincere heart motivated by true respect and reverence from God. Notice that he said nothing about the character or personality of the human authority over you. Instead, he's focusing on our hearts, on what we're to do in order to please him. Your boss may be your best friend or your worst enemy. In your opinion, the president may be the best president of all time or the biggest mistake we've ever made. That officer that pulls you over might be kind and compassionate or gruff and uncaring. The point is, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what kind of character they have or what kind of person they are. God cares about you and you seeking to obey them from the heart, motivated by your love and respect for him. That's what God cares about. Remember, we began this lesson. Jesus says his disciples are those who who take up their cross and they die to themselves and they follow him. This is what it looks like to follow him on a day-to-day basis as we walk through the different avenues of life God has given to us. Every situation we find ourselves in throughout the day is an opportunity to demonstrate the character of Christ and to worship God. If Christian slaves were to view obedience to their human masters as an opportunity to obey and glorify Christ, then how much more should we as free people view life the same way? So ask yourself, Does the quality of your obedience to the human authorities in your life flow from a sincere heart out of love and reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ? These are the qualities that God says accompany true obedience. But that brings us to a second aspect of life that is to be transformed by our relationship with Christ. Not only our relationship with human authority, but aspect number two is a Christian perspective of earthly work. Christian perspective of earthly work. Look back at the text in verse 23. He says, whatever you do. Now let's stop there. Whatever you do. This confronts a common misconception that a lot of Christians have. We tend to separate uh, secular work and sacred work in our minds. We see those activities that are directly related to the Great Commission or serving the church as being sacred activities, and then everything else is is just secular work. 
But what Paul is revealing for us here is the fact that we can and must serve Christ in our daily work regardless of the specific tasks we're carrying out. Of course, outside of what the scripture clearly condemns as sinful, as long as you're not doing that, you have an opportunity to use your work, whatever it is, as a means of glorifying Christ. Whether you're a doctor, a teacher, electrician, homemaker, pastor, cook, dishwasher, or truck driver, you have just as much opportunity in your job to bring glory to Christ. But how? How can we bring glory to God through secular work? Well, look back at the text, verse 23. Whatever you do, do your work. That's a command. That's the second command. Do your work. Literally, carry out your work. It's a present active command. And he's going to modify that command with three different qualities. Do your work in this way. What way? Three different qualities. Quality number one is from the heart. From the heart. Do your work as an ongoing pattern of life from the heart. Look back at verse 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. Heartily. Literally, the Greek is from the soul. That is, from your inner being, with all you've got. Do it heartily. Give your maximum effort. This is, this is not going to work and giving 50% or 75% of your capacity. It's, it's leaving it all out on the table, giving all that you've got, using your mental and physical abilities for the benefit of that job and your employer. You know, before going into ministry full-time, I, I worked several different kinds of jobs. I was a painter at one point. I waited tables for years. And, and every job I've ever worked there are always people who, who seem to just want to do the bare minimum that it takes to get by to get a paycheck. You ever worked with anyone like that? They, just, they, they don't really want to give their full effort. They want to know what is the line of acceptability, and I just want to stay one step ahead of that line. And I'm okay hanging out right there. Now, there's a lot of reasons that people justify a lack of effort at work. But I think I've found that pride is perhaps at the top of the list. Because when a person thinks that their job is beneath them, they feel justified in giving half-hearted effort because of the injustice of having to do this job for such little pay. But the context, the context here in this passage won't allow us to go there because who is Paul talking to? Slaves, right? These are those who are on the lowest of the totem pole in society and they're doing the jobs that nobody else wants to do and Paul says to them do your work heartily do it from the soul do it with all you've got this is exactly what Titus says in Titus chapter 2 he says urge slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything to be well-pleasing not argumentative not pilfering but showing all good faith so that listen to this so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect think about the impact that it would have had in that day if you were a slave and you're giving your maximum effort towards these things that are asked of you think of the impact that would have on on the boss Think of the, the impact that would have on the others that are working with you. That's Paul's point, is that when, when we submit ourselves to authority and we give all that we've got towards our job, we are adorning the, do, the, the gospel. We're adorning the doctrine of God. We are letting the gospel shine through us because of our character. And that's the point. 
Whatever your job is, however you earn a living or whatever your responsibilities are, you're not just earning a paycheck, but you are working for the glory of God and the expansion of his kingdom in what you're doing. One of the ways that we make the gospel shine is by consistently bringing our maximum effort to the job. So in our context, if you're a Christian employee, here's something that's different than the slave. If you're discontent with your job, you may go humbly and respectfully and have a conversation with your boss. You may quit your job and seek another job. But here's what you may not do. You may not, as long as you're in that role, give anything less than your maximum effort towards that job. Not because the job is so great, not because the salary is so great, but because God is so great. You see, there's so much more at stake than just your personal happiness and your paycheck. The reputation of Christ is on the line when we go to work. We go to work as his representatives, as his ambassadors. And so whatever task is laid on you, do it from the heart and make the gospel shine. But you might ask, how, how do we do that? How do we maintain this kind of perspective, especially when our job is unpleasant and we really wish we were doing something else or we wish we were being paid more, we think we should be paid more, whatever it may be. Well, the next two qualities that Paul's going to list will help us maintain this kind of perspective. Quality number two, we must do our work for the Lord. For the Lord, look back at verse 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. The first key to working consistently with the right attitude and the right effort is understanding who you're really working for. We've already hit on this because Paul really makes this same point in every single section. Remember who you're working for. You have a human boss or a human authority that delegates things to you, but they are not who you're really working for. Whether you're washing dishes or selling houses or frying chicken, your ultimate boss is the Lord Jesus Christ, especially if you're frying chicken. Thank you for that. The amazing truth is that, that, that Paul's describing here is no matter how menial or insignificant the world may consider your job to be, it matters to God because he sees it as an avenue through which you can serve him. The world looks at you and all they see is a dishwasher or a real estate agent or a homemaker, but God looks at you and sees a son or a daughter using the strength and the abilities that God has given to you to serve him for his glory, and he is worshiped and he is pleased. That's the perspective that Paul is trying to instill in these Christian slaves, and it's the perspective he's trying to instill in you and I. It's helpful that Paul adds specifically, not for men. We work for the Lord, not for men. That's helpful because in this world, you're going to work with unbelievers. You're going to work for and with unbelievers who don't share your beliefs or your values. Sometimes they may even use the profits that they make off of your hard efforts to support sinful movements and ideologies. But Paul reminds us that ultimately, we're not working for them. That's not who we're ultimately working for. So even in cases where your boss is ungodly or disrespectful or undervalues your efforts and your abilities and contributions, you can continue to give your maximum effort with joy if you remember who you're really working for. 
The more difficult your work situation, the more effort you're going to have to put into turning your mind to truth on a daily basis and reminding yourself, here's why I'm at work today. I'm at work to be a vessel for Christ, to honor Christ with my attitude and with my effort that he might be pleased with me. And the more you you fix your mind on Christ and fill your mind with the truth, the more you'll be able to walk in that way and serve Christ even through your job. And when you work with or for unbelievers, pray for them. Pray for their salvation. Uh, seek to love them the way that Christ would love them and look for opportunities and open doors to share the gospel with them. But the key is don't check your faith at the door. When you go to work, you go to work for your Savior, and it really matters. You know, sometimes people tell me they're envious of my job because I get to occupy myself all day with the things of God and the things of the church and the things that concern God's people. And don't get me wrong, I love my my job and my role, and it is a blessing and a privilege to be able to do what I do as also my employment. But understand, if, if we understand this rightly, what Paul is saying, you have just as much of an opportunity to serve Christ when you go to work as I do. If you put forth your effort in the way that, 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 that Paul is telling us to here, with the perspective that Paul is commanding, then you too have just as much opportunity to serve Christ. Ladies that stay home, as you're home and you work hard to serve your husband and your family and to, to keep the household running and in order, do you see yourself as a servant of Christ? As God does. Men, when you go off to work, when you clock in, do you see yourself going to work as a servant of Christ? God does. Kids, if you're here and you're a Christian, when you serve around the house and you obey your parents and you do the tasks that they ask you to do, do you see yourself as a servant of Christ? Because God does. You see, this is a, a teaching that should fundamentally change our view of life. It, it's interesting because this is the section of this passage that on the surface seems the most inapplicable to us. And yet I think this is the one that's most applicable to all of us universally because of the perspective that Paul is trying to give us about daily life. It's not so much about what you do, but how you do it and who you do it for. And there's one final quality that we need to look at this morning that describes the way that we are to work. We're to work for eternal reward. Eternal reward. Look back at the text again, verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. He begins with that word knowing. There are things that we have to know and keep in mind as we work. And one of them is the fact that it's from the Lord Jesus Christ that will receive this inheritance. Now again, remember the context. Who is Paul writing to? He's talking here to slaves. And he's saying you need to understand not only who you're working for, but what you're working for. Because obviously, as a slave, they're, they're not earning a paycheck on a regular basis in the way that, that we get to do in our job. Think about this. No matter how discontent you are with your salary, think about giving the same amount of effort that you give now for no salary. Think about how discontent you would be then. That is the plight of these that are hearing this message in the original audience. And so Paul says, remember that you do have an inheritance but it's not a salary, it's not even an earthly inheritance you'll receive in this life. You have an eternal inheritance that comes from Christ Jesus himself. This is an inheritance that's spoken of in many places in the scripture. 
Remember 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. How about 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18? Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The Christian, Paul says, is guaranteed an inheritance. That inheritance is glorification and the eternal life that we will have with Christ forever. Christian, that is your inheritance. And the value of that inheritance is is far beyond any earthly wealth that you could ever amass for yourself or your family. It's far better than any social status that you could gain for yourself. And Paul is saying, listen, Christian slaves, set your mind not on the fact that you gain no earthly reward for your work, but on the fact that you will receive an inheritance as a believer in Jesus Christ, and you will be with him forever. That's the perspective we're to have as Christians. Now, let me be honest and clear. There's nothing wrong with making a salary. There's nothing wrong with making a very healthy salary. But the point is, never set your heart upon it. Never set your heart upon it as if that is your treasure. Because when you die, you'll leave every cent of it here. Remember King Tut? Oh, King Tut. He, he, he filled his tomb with all these riches that he hoped to take with him into the next life. And where are they now? They're in a museum. You can go look at them. He didn't take them. I hope that you have a great job. I hope that you're able to make a livable wage, a healthy salary to support your family, but never set your heart on those things. That's not ultimately why we go to work. It's part of it. We are to provide for our families. There's nothing wrong with that. But what Paul wants us to understand is that there's so much more at stake when we go to work than just amassing wealth. There is an inheritance laid up for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ that is eternal And it will not be tarnished, and it will never fade away. It's not affected by the stock market. It's not affected by the housing market. It never fades. Listen, maybe you're here this morning, if you're honest, you're constantly discontent with your status in life. No matter how much money you make or how many promotions you get, you just... You just can't seem to be happy. You just can't seem to be content. There's always the desire for the next promotion and the next raise just around the corner. And that one's going to finally provide the security that we're looking for and the satisfaction and the the sense of self-identity and self-worth that I so long for. But Paul says that true contentment and joy in work on this planet is found only when we're working as slaves of Christ. That's where contentment and joy in work is found. Listen, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, then you have to begin there. The inheritance that Paul has just outlined is not yours if you're not in Christ. You have to come to the place where you understand that you are a sinner 
in the eyes of God, that you have rebelled against God and broken his law, and that if God gave you justice today, if he gave you what you really deserved, then you would spend eternity in hell, separated from him, experiencing his wrath forever. That's what the Bible says. The Bible also says there is good news in the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ came as the God-man, the Son of God, to live a perfect life, the life that we failed to live but should have lived. He lived it. He really did it. And then he laid down that perfect life as a sacrifice on the cross to pay for the sins of all who would repent and believe in him. The Bible says if you'll turn from your sins, like we talked about earlier, and you will will say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my only hope of salvation, and I will follow him as the Lord of my life. Instead of following myself and my sin, I will follow him. The Bible says you will be saved. You will become a son or a daughter of Christ. And this inheritance will be laid up for you. That's the good news of the gospel. Listen, don't waste another day in rebellion against the good God who made you. But turn today. Come to Jesus in repentance and faith. You'll find him ready to forgive. If you're in Christ this morning, then I want us to stop here for just a moment and meditate. We'll continue on in this passage next time. But there are some some key things for us to drive home this morning. Number one, I want to invite you and entreat you to evaluate your submission to earthly authority. Evaluate your submission to earthly authority. What's your attitude towards the authorities in your life? Is it one of obedience, as Paul demands here? Or would your boss or those who are in authority over you describe you as one who is rebellious and who pushes against their instructions and their demands? For the Christian, that kind of attitude is just simply unacceptable because it doesn't honor or represent Christ. So as you evaluate your own life, commit yourself today, in this moment, that you will work hard to humble yourself and willingly submit to the authorities in your life for the sake of Christ. Secondly, evaluate the quality of your work. Evaluate the quality of your work. Whatever your tasks or responsibilities are in your station in life, honestly ask yourself, do you work from the heart? Do you give your maximum effort to accomplish the tasks that are laid before you? Or if you're honest, do you always look for ways to cut corners and lighten the load or just do enough to cross over the line of acceptable? Paul says this won't do because, again, we represent Christ We're not working for our human authority. We're working for the glory of Christ. Just ask yourself, how would your effort and your attitude about life and the the roles that you play, the work you have to do, change if every day you got up and realized that your work was an opportunity to glorify Christ? I mean, what if we really thought about life that way? How would it transform the way you work, the way you live? Paul says that should be our approach. Thirdly and finally, I want to encourage you to evaluate your perspective of work. Your perspective of work. Do you realize that your work is intended to glorify God? That work is not bad? Sometimes we just hate going to work. We wish work was over. We long for the day when we don't have to go to work. The Bible says work's not bad. Does your relationship with Christ inform and dictate the way you carry yourself at work? Or if if you're honest, do the people you work with even know that you're a Christian? Would they be surprised to find that out? 
And do you, conti- do you continually keep the eternal reward of life with Christ in mind as the ultimate motivation for why you live life? That you get to be with him. And so all of this stuff, no matter how hard it is or how bad it is, it pales in comparison to Christ. That is the key to working with contentment and joy in a way that pleases the Lord and honors him. And it's the key to obeying the commands that Paul has given us in this text. There's one final command that we'll look at next time. But until then, I pray that these things would, would be bound to our hearts, that we would think on these things and be, be different because of it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would transform the way that we think about our lives in general, that our perspective would be an eternal perspective, that we would see the roles you give us, whether it be in secular employment or working around our homes for our families, whatever it may be, may we see that as an opportunity to serve you, to bring you glory, to use the the strengths and gifts and talents that you've given us to, to be a benefit to others, but ultimately to bring glory to your name. God, help us to think about life the way that you think about life, to live it for your namesake. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.